The Triad Podcast Network is sponsored by Jennifer Johnson, owner of Three Magnolias Financial Advisors and a local certified financial planner who helps people plan for big financial goals such as retirement or college. Especially now, navigating markets is challenging, particularly for those gearing up for retirement, young professionals, business owners, or retirees. Am I saving enough for retirement? As a business owner, do I need a workplace retirement plan to attract and retain key employees? Am I using the right individual investment strategies? Personally, I had some of those questions. Plus, how do I save for my kids' college education? So I went and got local independent advice from Jennifer and her team at Three Magnolias Financial Advisors. They're located in Winston-Salem, and you can get started like I did with a complimentary, no-obligation consultation right here in the triad. Just call 336-701-1600 or email jennifer at the number 3-magnolias.com. Jennifer at 3-magnolias.com. And be sure to catch Jennifer's podcast covering all sorts of financial tips, trends, and strategies right here on this same feed with the Triad Podcast Network. Securities offered through Satara Advisor Networks, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Three Magnolias Financial Advisors. Three Magnolias Financial Advisors and Satara Advisor Networks are not affiliated. Satara is under separate ownership from any other named entity. All right, I'm at the Red House with Eddie Huffman, old friend of mine, and I am glad that you were able to make it over today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Hell yeah. So uh, what you been up to? <laughs> uh, finished my the first draft of my new book this summer, which was a, an epic project. Took me five years. Um, supposed to be two years. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, doing a biography of Doc Watson for University of North Carolina Press. Damn. And Doc had a long... You know, long, long, complicated life. There was a lot of story to tell there and, and talked to a lot of interesting people. So it was quite a project. Well, this is a, this is a brand new endeavor. Um, of course, we'll reserve. I'm, I'm sure I, I probably have enough questions about that that could last us for two, <laughs> two or three hours. <laughs> yeah. I'll yeah. reserve as much as I can. Um, yeah. So so this, this took you a little longer than you expected. Oh, you my said. God. Yeah. Yeah. How's that yeah. happen? It was part of it was my, my first book, the John Prine book over here. Um, I got very little cooperation, which was frustrating, but mm. you know, did it anyway. <laughs> and, um, so with this one, I didn't get full cooperation from everybody I wanted to talk to. Um, his his daughter being the main Doc's daughter being the main um, holdout, and she's kind of not cooperative with a lot of people, from what I've been told. So mm. I was not terribly surprised, um, but. Talked to tons of people that played with Doc, you know, that, that knew him from childhood. Um, just, you know, people out in California that would go see him play and he'd go to their guitar shop and just, you know, on and on and on. Just had a lot, a lot of good stories and a lot of good sources. And that just kind of snowballed into a pretty epic, you know, experience. Mm. Yeah, I tracked down a guy. There were some like odd little things that I was like trying to, um, they were frustrating because I thought there was probably some interesting stories there, but they were not going anywhere and just kept digging and digging. And one thing was Doc played in Mexico City during the 1968 Olympics. And um, that was the like the, the, the thing everybody remembers about that Olympics is where the two guys did the, the Black Power salute on the on the stand after they won gold me- or won medals. Mm-hmm. Um, Doc wasn't there that night as far as I can tell, but he was around for you know kind of in the middle of all that. And happened to find a, um, I won't get too far into the weeds here, but found a, um, 
like an oral history thing online with a guy who worked for the State Department. And one, one little sentence or two in that oral history, he mentioned that he escorted Doc and Merle around Mexico City during the Olympics in 1968. So, hmm. oh, that's, that's interesting. And he's still alive and well, so I tracked him down. And he had some good stories about you know taking, taking Doc and Merle around Mexico City. Damn. And that same year, they, and this is another thing that's like, there's just a little bit of information out there. But that same year, he went to Africa. The State Department sent him to Africa to five small countries in kind of south-central Africa, Malawi, and I'd have to go back and look. But, um, And, like, I would ask people, it's like, did Doc ever talk about going to Africa? And they'd go, yeah, he said it was really hot. It's <laughs> like, well, that's, that's, that's a whole chapter right there. <laughs> so it was really frustrating not getting good, good stories about Doc. You know, I knew there had to be some stories there. Right. And finally, um, Gwen, my partner, put me in touch with a friend of hers named Sunshine who works for the State Department now. And she connected me to the some State Department archives in like the cultural program of the State Department. Their archives are at the University of Arkansas. And turns out they had photos of Doc and Merle in Africa in their archives, which huh. as far as I know are not really out there. And um, so they sent me copies of the photos, just emailed me, you know, photos. And there's a shot of Doc playing, Doc and Merle playing with the Kachamba brothers. And I'm like, okay, maybe the Kachamba brothers are still around. And started looking into them. And they are both dead, the guys that played music. But um, a guy who played with them and writes books about music himself, he's an Austrian professor. Um, he's still alive and well and toured for a while with one of the Kachamba brothers. And I called his office in Austria. And they said, oh, he's, he's in Malawi or wherever it is you know, now. Um, here's here's how to reach him there. And I called him there. Turned out he was staying with a guy who's in one of those photos with Doc and Merle <laughs> from 1968. Holy hell. So just, you know, that kind of thing. It's like every everything I'd look into, I'd, I'd find this just kind of rich little vein of stories and people. Man. And so, like I said, it just kind of snowballed from, you know, what I thought was a pretty simple, or I don't know if simple project's the word for it, but it just got a lot more sort of in-depth and, and complex than I was expecting going into it. Which is a way better reason to get held up, you know, than, oh, yeah, yeah. than like what the, I didn't have enough to write about. Yeah, for know? sure, for sure. Uh, that's awesome, man. I mean, just the, the the fun fantasy of a life like that that kind of maps all over the world in some kind of mysterious way it yeah, sounds yeah. amazing yeah. To, uh, to be the person like trying to put all that together. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I talked to people who were there when, like, when he first started playing Greenwich Village in the early '60s, part of the folk scene. You know, like he started playing New York around the time Dylan arrived. And I talked to John Sebastian from The Love and Spoonful, and John Cohen, who's great photographer and documentary filmmaker. And you know, I talked to those kinds of people and people who worked at his record companies and just all you know, all walks of life. People mm. connected with him over the years, so it's, it's, it was a really fun project. The the problem now is it's really long, and it's probably going to have to be cut down a good bit because it's it's about four times as long as the Prime book as it stands now. Mm. So it's we're still in kind of in the early stages of of editing and you know deciding how long it's going to be and what what's going to happen next. So well, man, I I'm excited for this. I'm Thanks. and congratulations Thanks. on Thanks. the achievement. Yeah. So. But you said something about both these books that maybe I don't really fully understand. Like, what is the lack of sort of enthusiasm about about maybe giving full cooperation to somebody doing a project like what you're doing? What does that tend to be about? Um, 
you don't always know. And with Doc especially, like I said, his his daughter is kind of has a reputation for um, not being very cooperative with, with people. So there may just be that that's just kind of how she is. But um, the his manager did say that Doc resisted the idea of a of a biography, although there was one. There's already been one out, and he was so open in his interviews over the years, and there was very little he wouldn't talk about, as far as I can tell. I mean, there may be lots of things that I don't know that he didn't talk about, but you know, his life is kind of kind of an open book, so to speak. Yeah. And it just kind of uh, you know, I didn't really have any qualms about doing a biography on him. I feel like it's just kind of putting together a lot of what's already out there and, and adding some good stories on top of that. Um, so, and another guy I would like to have talked to was uh, T Michael Coleman, who played bass with doc for mm. years and years. And I found out he was writing his own memoir. So I expect that may have had been at least part of his resistance was, that, I see. you know, he, he never got back to me, but it may have been that, you know, he, he had his own thing going and, you know, was not going to, be a part of my thing. I don't, I don't know. He never really told me anything, you know, and just never got any response from him. So I don't really know what his, his thinking was there. Yeah. Um, and with Prine, um, th- there was kind of an interesting conversation. I ended up hearing from somebody who knew Prine and really liked the book and knew Prine's manager who died around the time the book came out, Al Benetta, who was Prine's manager for most of his career. And this guy basically said that Bonetta was kind of too much of a, a guard dog and would just kind of kept everybody at bay and was overprotective mm-hmm. and heard from more than one person that you know, they, they thought Bonetta was maybe not the best guy, especially later in Prine's career that, um, you know, that he was maybe a little bit older and out of touch and just he needed yeah, and and Prine did like sort of change up the way he did things after his um his wife and one of his sons kind of took over his career and record company and all that after Bonetta died. Mm. And he just started working a lot more with younger artists. I think was more had more of a presence on social media. Just kind of was putting himself out there in a different way than he had before that. Yeah. Um, so I think you know Bonetta was at least part of the problem, and he actually talked to me one time. Um, I kept sort of pestering the record company, and you know they were like record company and management company, Oh Boy mm-hmm. Records, and you know, hoping to get an opening with Prine. And like one time, I found some some old concert reviews I'd done that I had kind of misplaced, and it's like, oh, here's some more stuff I wrote about John over the years, and really positive stuff, and it's like kind of show that I had good intentions and was not out to you know write anything nasty about him. And finally talked to um, Bonetta one day, and this was toward the end of the writing process. And just out of the blue, he goes, people are going to tell you a lot of stories about drinking with John, and this happened when he was drunk, and those stories aren't true. <laughs> it's like, well, then why are you bringing it up? <laughs> and, yeah, there, there are definitely some stories but uh, about John and, you know, John Prine being a pretty heavy drinker at one point in his sure. life. and. And I, you know, I touched on that in the book, but that was never, you know, I was never trying to write the sort of scandal, you know, tell all sort of book. Right. And um, so I, I, just based on that conversation, I have to assume that part of the reluctance was they were afraid I was going to sort of paint him as this, you know, crazy alcoholic mm. wild man or something. And um, so I think that was maybe an element of it. Also, I've realized over the years that he had a lot of like music journalist friends, and mm. I expect, you know, I, I can't imagine that some of them didn't approach him about doing a book at one point. 
And I imagine, you know, if, if he told them no, he's not about to tell some stranger yes. Right. <laughs> so there was probably that angle and, you know, who knows what all what all the elements were there. But that, that was a frustrating experience. I feel like I got a lot of good information, but uh, there were several times where I would call somebody and um, to talk about interviewing them for the book. And they would go, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Let me ask John or let me ask Al Albanetta. And then I would never hear from them again. Oh, so, wow. So that, and that was actually a concern going into the Doc Watson book. I told my editor, it's like, I, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to go through that experience where nobody's cooperating and I'm just really hitting a lot of, a lot of dead ends. So, sure. Um, so fortunately it was dramatically better with the doc book. You know, not, not a hundred percent cooperation from every last person, but you know, I'd say 90 plus percent of the people I wanted to talk to, I was able to talk to. So, and several people have died since I talked to them. So I'm really oh, glad wow. I, you know, glad I kind of got in under the wire with some of those folks. Like I mentioned John Cohen and, Mac Wiseman, the legendary bluegrass singer, and several people like that I talked to before they they were gone. So mm-hmm. that was you know nice to feel like I uh, made that happen for sure. So before I get to the broadest question that I, I think I knew I would ask you, yeah, uh, a step toward that might be what is it about these two subjects that drew you? Why did you pick these two guys uh, to to write these first two books about John Prine and Doc? Um, I didn't totally pick them. Ah. <laughs> uh, they were the, the prime book more, prime more than doc. Um, the my, David Menconi, who I've known for 30 years, uh, he was longtime music critic for the Raleigh news and observer. He was one of the editors for the series that the prime book was a part of. It's, um, gotcha. university of Texas press, uh, the American music series. And he basically just, he emailed or called me one day in 2012 and said, I've got a book series going. You should pitch something to us. And I looked into what they were doing and they had a book on Dwight Yoakam and Merle Haggard. And I was just trying to think, you know, who's somebody that would kind of fit. And he, he mentioned, probably mentioned a couple other you know, projects, titles, subjects they had in the works. And I was just kind of trying to think, you know, number one, who's somebody that would kind of fit what they're looking for. And who's somebody I like, who's somebody that has an interesting life, you know, just kind of within that sort of um, parameter, those parameters, I was trying to find a good subject. And Prime just seemed like a pretty obvious choice. Yeah. And also, and one thing I've, I've told people, it's like, one factor is it sounds a little silly in some ways, but it's like, I'm going to have to listen to this, these people's music a lot for like two years or more yeah i want somebody that i can like really enjoy listening to their music for a long time it's legit yeah yeah so um you know not just liking them but somebody i could really kind of live with their music for a lot a lot of time uh so that was that was a factor as well so neither one of them was like you know oh my god that you know this is a mission i've always wanted to write a book about these people it was not that kind of thing but um, so anyway, the Prime book, you know, that that's how the, that happened. And then with the Doc book, um, my editor is named Lucas Church. He is a Boone native. And part of it was he, he wanted a Doc book and he wanted a book about the mountains where he was from. And he liked the Prime book and he approached me and said, you know, would you be interested in doing a book about Doc? And mm. I was like, yeah. <laughs> how could I turn that down? It's not something I'd ever thought about, but, you know, it's Doc is a, huge figure in you know american music folk music north carolina history north carolina music so you know this is just having that kind of subject handed to me on a platter i really couldn't turn it down absolutely yeah 
So that takes me to my broad question, I guess. Yeah. Like what, why, what, like, uh, I, I mean, I, I've known you as a music journalist mm-hmm. for writing things about the local scene here, yeah. including about my releases and stuff. Yeah. Why music? Why was that your subject? Why did, why was, uh, why was that what, why is that what you write about? Uh, the, the simple answer is the Rolling Stone record guide. <laughs> when I was in high school, I borrowed a copy of the original Rolling Stone record guide, which came out in the late 70s, um, borrowed it from a friend and was just just fascinated by it. I'd always liked music, but was kind of, you know, not a real serious music fan. And, you know, I'm pretty embarrassed at some of the records I bought when I was a teenager, <laughs> or young teenager and just you know, did not have very discriminating tastes. And this book, it was just, it was you know, funny and fascinating and just um, extremely opinionated. There, there are things in there in that book that make me cringe going back and looking at them now. <laughs> but just as a, you know, they kind of hit me, hit me in the, you know, hit me where I lived as a, as a you know, 15 year old, 16 year old, whatever I was at the time. Um, and just opened the doors. You know, I didn't know anything about punk rock. I didn't know anything, really didn't know much about, you know, like, the British invasion. I mean, I knew the Beatles, I knew the obvious hits by the stones, but just opened me up to, you know, really got into the who because of that book, got into Neil Young, just the kinks, which I'm still massive kinks fan. Um, just lots of stuff that I knew little to nothing about Mm. before that book. And it just, and then like they had a kind of a, I think it had kind of a bibliography in the back and yeah, that led me to other books and just, you know, it just kind of opened the doors into that world that, um, I don't think I would have experienced or had definitely had not experienced before that otherwise. Well, I loved music too, obviously. So just that, that sort of combination of good writing about music and, mm. you know, loving music, it, that, that just seemed like an obvious you know, thing to put together. You already loved music by the time you read this book. Oh yeah. Yeah. But like I said, my tastes were, were pretty, pretty broad mainstream. You know, I was a big Barry Manilow fan when I was like 13 or whatever. I mean, weren't we all? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know just just had to kind of learn and and like yeah just didn't understand punk rock didn't understand you know a lot of r&b just there's a lot of stuff i just kind of had no context for and had not listened to or you know like classic country music i didn't grow up with that and, mm-hmm. you, know, you know george jones merle haggard people like that it it it, inter- it just opened my mind to a lot of people like that that i've you know, had not, either not thought about or just can had been dismissive of before, and yeah, just you know, kind of opened up this big wide world that I didn't really know was out there. How old were you? You think? I'd say probably sixteen, roughly. Yeah, because uh, I started hanging out with a band. I didn't play anything. <laughs> I played drums briefly in the middle school band, but just had some friends that had a band. So I just go hang out and, you know, kind of be their groupie and hang out in the practice room. And so that, that was a part of it too. Just, you know, talking music with those guys and, um, just kind of absorbing, you know, just sort of seeing what that was all about. Did that attract you? What it was all about? You know, oh, yeah, yeah. That yeah. whole, the whole vibe of being around musicians. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. You know, I still have tons of musician friends. And yeah. Just, you know, just like creative, interesting people. Were you an avid reader at oh, that yeah, time too? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was much, probably much more serious about literature as a teenager than, than, and, you know, than music early on. Hmm. Um, just, yeah, read, you know, tons of classic stuff, Mark Twain and, um, 
trying, you know, catch 22. I'm just trying to sort of all the, you know, it's the classics you read in school or hear about, um, to kill a mockingbird, stuff like that. But yeah. I was a big Stephen King fan in middle school. I remember reading the stand three times in a row. <laughs> it's like 800 that's, page. Book. Yeah. That's a, that's one of the honking ones, ain't it? <laughs> yep. Yep. So just, yeah, it was just really, and it was like heavily into comic books. So just, yeah, lots, lots of different types of, of literature. Hmm. captivated me early on mad magazine loved mad magazine as a kid uh national lampoon which i had to sneak in the house because my parents would kill me if they found it was it was pretty it's a pretty horrifying magazine in some ways if you go back i don't know if you've seen there's a great documentary it's um something you know fast out of control and dead or something. i can't remember the title it's it's got this catchy title but yeah um you know there was a lot of like looking back there was a lot of like really racist offensive stuff in there but there's also just a lot of like really cutting dark humor and mm. just um you know I, I just was attracted to, and yeah monty python just was attracted to just kind of edgy you know, at the time edgy you know Stuff that was very different from my little Baptist Burlington, North Carolina world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I know that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. The Triad Podcast Network is brought to you by Ashley McKenzie Sharp and the Sharp Mortgage Team, who are here to tell you that there are options for people in Winston-Salem ready to buy a home, but are hesitant because of interest rates. The Sharp Mortgage Team can help buyers in many ways, including using North Carolina down payment assistance and a program called the 2-1 Buy-Down. How does it work? The buyer pays a fee at closing to reduce the interest rate on the buyer's mortgage by 2% in year one and 1% in the second year. This temporarily lowers the buyer's monthly payment to make the home more affordable. Then in two years, the buyer can look to reduce the interest rate by refinancing the house. Now that so many homes are on the market, this is a fantastic way to negotiate with the seller so that you both win. The Sharp team is here to help buyers all around the triad purchase their next home. Get started with a simple email, ashley at sharploans.com. A-S-H-L-E-Y at S-H-A-R-P-E loans.com. Ashley at sharploans.com. I guess I can understand that attraction, but it just sounds like, I mean, hearing, hearing you talk about all that Mm -hmm. sounds like you had like a, I don't know, like a vivid mind or imagination or something. And uh, like, I don't know what that means, but I'm fascinated by this idea that, that reading this one book put you on this path. Cause I know you as like a serious music enthusiast or something and like somebody who, who like you've told, I've watched you tell my story. I've watched you understand to a degree what I'm doing and what yeah. I'm like trying to say yeah. and a, to the degree that you can actually communicate it to other people. And that's like a weird skill to have. You have to yeah. really know yeah. what somebody, you have to know what the hell somebody's talking about to be able to do that. For sure. Yeah. So it's pretty yeah. cool, I guess, that you would manage to like embody this passion in this way. Yeah. Well, and part of it's just, you know, longevity. <laughs> I really, yeah, I definitely didn't really know what I was doing when I started, but I've been doing it for almost 40 years now. So it's, you know, yeah, I guess I've, I've learned a few things along the way and just, and reading lots of music journalism, just sort of learning the, you know, learning the language, learning the tricks of the trade and, and just doing it, just putting myself out there. Cause it was, I remember it being really hard to, I was just incredibly nervous when I started interviewing musicians and just that whole sort of imposter syndrome, just, you know, are they going to realize that I don't really know what I'm talking about? (laughs) That kind of thing. So, 
Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad, glad you feel that way about what I've written about your stuff. And, um, Oh yeah. The thing you wrote about life lessons was, a uh, one of my favorite pieces. I oh, think nice, anybody nice. ever wrote about something I was up to. It yeah. just, I think really captured, uh, at least the chaos I felt like I was experiencing <laughs> yeah, or something yeah. like that. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, damn. What, what was I about to ask you? Um, the, but writing though, I mean like a lot, like I guess different people come up reading or watching movies or listening to music, mm-hmm. but how did you, at what point did you say, you know what, I've, I'm going to start actually like writing words down about this stuff and not just, not just talking to musicians about it, but actually like doing it and pursuing it. Yeah. Um, I remember wanting to do, I, I was editor of my high school newspaper my senior year and did a lot of you know, that kind of thing. I remember wanting to do record reviews there and they wouldn't let me. Mm. (laughs) Um, But just, you know, basically once I started paying attention to, you know, music, music criticism, I wanted to do it. Um, And at first that's kind of all I wanted to do was just like review stuff. It almost didn't occur to me to, you know, sort of be an interviewer and do do profiles of musicians at Mm. first. And that kind of came a little bit later. But, um, and it just like I remember one thing. This is kind of embarrassing, but um, my friend Phil and I used to go see shows in Raleigh a lot when we were in high school. And we got in a big argument one night coming back from a show about whether the Beatles or the Kinks were the better band. <laughs> and I told Jim I'm a Kinks fanatic, so I was taking the beat, the Kinks side, which is you know, kind of ridiculous. But, <laughs> but you know that's what you do when you're 17 years old, and you know got all the time in the world. To, argue about stupid stuff so yeah but i remember like actually writing like sitting down and writing out like handwriting this whole <laughs> essay about why the kinks were better than the beatles just you know just because i wanted to make that argument back then um but it started uh, i guess it really kind of started when i was in college and just started writing for the um there's a little uh, kind of weekly in chapel hill called the phoenix that i wrote for a little bit and then started writing for the main paper and on campus the daily tar hill and mm. you know Mostly, actually, I guess I started doing interviews pretty early on, but um, mostly reviewing concerts. I remember reviewing you know, Lou Reed and The Replacements and The Hoodoo Gurus and all kinds of people. That was, I think, the guy from Dave Faulkner from The Hoodoo Gurus, I think, was the first person I ever interviewed. Hmm. And um, so Australian guy. So that was, like I said, some of those interviews were pretty nerve-wracking, especially. It's like my first interview and this guy's from Australia. <laughs> I just remember feeling like, you know, just way in way over my head early on as in like as a as a journalist is that what you mean what what as a journalist over your in over your head as a journalist yeah yeah just i mean you know i was you know 19 years old or whatever i was at the time and just you know had barely done anything like this so it was mm. just you know yeah it was all just very very new and intimidating to me and i, and I took it very seriously too so i didn't want to screw it up so you know there there i definitely felt like there was something at stake it wasn't just a you know, it wasn't a lark. It wasn't something I was doing just for the hell of it. Yeah. Were you, were you at school for journalism? I went there planning to major in journalism. And one, one problem I ran into was the prerequisite for all the other journalism classes was an eight o'clock, four hour, eight o'clock class. And I didn't want to take a four hour, eight o'clock class. (laughs) And I kept putting that off and finally decided, you know, I can just like, uh, basically decided to made a double majored in history and English. And mm-hmm. I just felt like, you know, I can do, I can write without a journalism degree. Yeah. So, which is, 
you know, I had a lot of stupid reasons for doing and not doing things, but <laughs> that was, that was a big part of it. And I, I don't know, it just, I kind of like just, you know, getting more into literature and, <laughs> you know, the, I've always been a big history buff. I just kind of liked it, you know, di- doing a deeper dive into some of those things. Then I guess journalism felt more like a, um, what's the word for it? Um, not like not craft is not quite the word I'm trying to think of, but it, you know, like almost like sort of professional training. I was, I was more interested in sort of, you know, just learning as much as I could about a variety of things and less about the sort of professional training aspect of. Yeah. Like there's a, like a specific discipline to that kind Mm -hmm. of journalism. Yeah. 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 And also just never had, I ended up having to do a lot of straight journalism early on, but that was really not what I was interested in. You know, I didn't want to go cover, school board meetings and city council meetings. And then, yeah, I did it anyway, cause I had to pay the bills. <laughs> you know, that was not the kind of thing I was really interested in, in pers- learning about and pursuing. Yeah. So. I would imagine 8am for the average, like straight journalist or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like that's probably, that's like, that's like 10am to the rest of us <laughs> or something in some ways, yeah. kind of like cameramen yeah. with news, with yeah. news companies. It's just like, yeah, you, you, you have early days. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you gave up that you gave up that aspect of the career almost. Yeah, for, yeah. and, for and there are things ones. I could, you know, I definitely could have used some some of that training. I think there were there were. I always kind of got by on my writing. You know, I would I would do really well in classes sometimes just because I could write good papers. I might you know, a lot of times would feel like I didn't necessarily have the subject grasped that well, but mm. I could write about it pretty well. So, yep, that, that was kind of my saving grace with a lot of things over yep. the years. Journalism was what I wanted to go to school oh, yeah, for, yeah. really. Jur- well, journalism or creative writing, okay. but uh, I didn't really go to school for very long for either one. Yeah, yeah. I went to Guilford Tech for a while for music business, okay. but then I was like, nah, I'm just yeah. going to go start playing music. Okay. Uh, and and sometimes I, I mean, the times that I have thought back on the path, I have wished that I had gone to school for journalism. Hmm. That's okay. like the thing I feel like I missed out on. Yeah. Something about observing and being able to, talk about what you observe is, yeah, yeah. it's something I've still learned how to do within songwriting, but you know, I don't, you can probably never master that too much, mm-hmm. you know, like it's probably, it's, I, I'm very curious maybe what the deepest aspects of those, what, what a, a program like that might consist of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not the one to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I imagine it's changed a good bit. Just, you know, a lot has changed with journalism, a lot of it for the worst since I was in college, but um, anyway, so yeah, tell me, talk a little bit, if you don't mind about your, your background on how you started doing that, you know, oh. writing about music yourself. Sure. Uh, like for the relish or whatever. Yeah. Just what, any, anything. Yeah. I forgot. Yeah. I, I guess I could say I wrote about you music did. or something. Um, well, so writing was kind of, this was weird. I will tell you this. This sounds odd. Um, something. Yeah. I'll just tell you this. Um, so Long story short, I missed a year of school one mm-hmm. time uh, when my when my when my parents' life was kind of in disarray. Yeah, I kind of missed a lot of of a, a gap where I think uh, like in a, de- a developmental time. Okay. Also, I have really bad eyes. Um, two important details that landed me in a position where in elementary school they thought I couldn't read and stuff. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. And I believed them. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, I guess I'm fucking stupid or something like I I don't know 
I tested very poorly in reading and reading comprehension and stuff. Uh, so I ended up in a in like a, a class, a learning disability class, yeah. to, to yeah. tell you the truth, uh, which was like in the department of writing and creative writing and stuff. Yeah, a lot more special attention and like I just excelled in that. Excelled at being the least <laughs> in like the department of school where you're considered to be uh, excelling the least. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if it was the extra attention or, or the pace of it, um, but I just kind of found out that writing was something that made a lot of sense to me. And yeah, it was yeah, a good cool. way to, I don't know, get people to understand what I was saying. Mm-hmm. And I just fell in love with it. Yeah. Uh, and that was like fifth grade or something. Well, so, especially if you're coming from that, you know, sort of being underestimated and mm-hmm. treated like you weren't very smart to go from that to you know, being able to express yourself really well, I would imagine that's really empowering. I think that's why I was drawn to it. Yeah. I, I think yeah. I felt like I had to compensate for that, uh, for, for this, this idea that like, that I couldn't understand what I was reading. And mm-hmm. truth be told, when I would take those reading comprehension tests, I wouldn't read any of it. I would just start with the questions and like start skimming to see if I could find some of the answers. Huh, okay. So I, of course I didn't comprehend anything yeah. I read cause I didn't <laughs> read any of it, but yeah. Yeah, yeah I pro- probably had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about concerning my intellect for mm-hmm. a couple of years. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I leaned into writing and like I would write essays for fun and I really got a thrill out of we had a, a, a grading system or a judgment system that went up to like a five and mm-hmm. the five was the best you could get on a on a paper in elementary school or whatever. Yeah. So uh, I got a real thrill out of writing things that my teacher would kind of be like this is a, this is five through and through yeah, whatever. Yeah. I'd be like, hell yeah, it is. You're telling me. <laughs> um, so I carried that around with me all through middle school yeah, and yeah. even into high school. I was just, I was like trying to write novels and I, this was before I ever played guitar. I, I played drums as a kid. Mm-hmm. I didn't really start playing guitar till later in high school. Uh, so writing was really my passion. And when I was in high school, I started a creative writing club and I ended up being one of the editors of the newspaper in high school and stuff. It was just, it was, and it was almost, I went to this, um, I went to a creative writing camp at UNCW actually. That was, uh, that was a thrill for me, you know? So that exposed us to all this different writing, like journalism and poetry and novels and and your fiction. How old were you when you do that? I did it for two years. I was 16 and 17. Oh, I would have, I would have loved something like that. That's great. It was awesome, man. Yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, college kids were running it and yeah. you, you got away from the parents for a week sure, or whatever. Yeah. And it was exciting. It was like, yeah. Oh my God, like this is what college will be like. Whole new world. Yeah. 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 Like <laughs> I remember some girls that were there just probably out being in trouble or something. And they were like, they were like, do you like to party and stuff? And I was like, yeah, I like to have fun. <laughs> And they were like, uh, do you want to sneak out tonight and yeah. smoke cigarettes? And I was like, no, I don't think that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was a <laughs> art writing. That was my rebellion. I didn't yeah. really need yeah. to sneak out a window of a dorm room or whatever. Sure. So yeah. anyway, um, that led to eventually I became a musician, all this stuff. But um, one day when I was receiving a grant from the Arts Council, I ran into Lynn Felder mm-hmm. at uh, at the reception ceremony okay. or whatever, and I I don't know how I like maybe we did a little small talk or something as she mentioned being at the relish and mm-hmm. I was like 
I've always wanted to freelance. I've always wanted to get into some journalism yeah, stuff. And yeah. she said, well, you know, Ed Bumgarner used to do that for the paper. Mm-hmm. And like, maybe I could picture you doing something like that if you yeah. want to try it out. So she just gave me a shot. Nice. I got nice. to write, uh, I got to interview Rusted Root. I got to interview yeah. Chris Stapleton. Okay. And of course, like I, I think I did a piece on Doug Davis and, mm-hmm. uh, Sound lizard and so different. If, if you things write about music in once in Salem, you got to write about Doug. <laughs> Absolutely, <later. laughs> he's got something going on every week. Yep, you you yep. have to cover one of them. Yep. Uh, that was that was it. It was just kind of a lucky meeting, Lynn, yeah, yeah. and they just for some reason were willing to work with me. I mean, I'm sure I sent them examples of my work and like yeah. a resume of sorts, but yeah. I didn't have any formal journalism experience. Yeah, they just yeah. kind of were very cool about giving me an opportunity to nice. do that. Yeah, Lynn, Lynn's a good person. I'm, I miss working with her. She's I was talking about the, the changes for the worse in journalism and you know, Lynn, Lynn getting laid off from the Winston-Salem Journal is definitely one of the things that's, you know, disappointing in recent years. Mm, yeah. But I'm, I'm glad you got that, that opportunity. Like, I've, I've been kind of watching what the internet and what different things extending from the internet have mm-hmm. done to music. And yeah. I, like, what comes to mind lately is like the, the whole TikTok thing and mm-hmm. Insta- even Instagram and Facebook – has a similar evolution or maybe the evolution taken place with journalism? Uh, do, do people read less now? Oh Lord. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, pe- people read, you know, bites on social media, but I don't think, I think people read very little long form journalism anymore. And yeah, you know, newspapers, it's like only old people read newspapers, unfortunately. Um, and it's also just, it's a combination of people not reading nearly as much, I think. And, also, just sort of the business model of newspapers has been destroyed by the internet. Like, mm-hmm. like Craigslist kind of made classifieds irrelevant. And then, like, you used to always have these huge pages of, um, like, car dealership ads and real estate ads. Internet made that irrelevant. Just all these things that funded newspapers just kind of the internet took away. Mm. For, you know, it, it became something you could just do yourself just as well or even better without having the newspaper as sort of the middleman. And so, yeah, just all those things. And then there's been all sorts of, you know, corporate consolidation and, um, you know, there, there have been, I've heard allegations that a lot of media companies these days buy up newspapers just to buy their property. Like, you know, a lot of them have valuable downtown properties and that they're more interested in the property than they are in the the journalism, which I can't, can't help but think there's some validity validity to that mm. um, so yeah just there's been a lot of different things have kind of undermined traditional newspapers over the years and i've, I've kind of watched it just dive bomb i feel like in the sense of you know i think about that sometimes when i started writing for newspapers in the 80s it's like you could go anywhere in the country and get a newspaper job they weren't very hard to find it's kind of like being a you know being a journalist was like being a nurse or a teacher it's like you go anywhere there's going to be jobs like mm. they, they're not going to pay shit but you know you can find work you can you know you can go out there and practice your craft but that's just not at all the case anymore you know you know as well as i do in music that there's sort of this revival of i think like retroism in a way mm-hmm. and and now like if people i mean if you put out vinyl it's a pretty not that it's very profitable to put mm-hmm. out vinyl, but people want that physical oh, thing yeah. sometimes yeah. compared to CDs or tapes or whatever. Or streaming. Especially. Or streaming, yeah. you know. I yeah. mean, like, I am I know I, 
I get exposed to more stuff via streaming than I do. Like if I really love something, then I'm going to buy it on vinyl. Is there anything like that in terms of like the magazine world or the book world that is a similar thing in, in the literary world? Like, is it, um, is it as significant in the same way or whatever to put out a book or to write for a magazine that comes out every month or something? Well, I really like having, you know, physical copies of my books out yeah. there, <laughs> but you know, I, I do almost all my reading on uh, the, my Kindle app on my phone. Really? Now. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody else of not supporting sort of the physical product. Uh, it's because it's so easy. You know, I've, I've got a book with me everywhere I go now. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I'm trying to think, but, and, and, you know, ma- physical magazines are definitely going away. Like entertainment weekly just stopped publishing recently after you know 30 plus years. Mm. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I, and I don't know if there's, uh, there, there are definitely people that sort of fetishize print books. And I know a lot of people that are still very devoted to buying print books. Yeah. But um, I feel like that's a very kind of narrow, narrow group of people that, you know, people who do read, um, you know, I expect most people read, can read books on Kindles these days. Yeah. Or, or equivalent, you know. I mean, that's really interesting because there, there's a question in there that I've been trying to figure out for a while yeah. what that kind of means about the trajectory of these crafts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, the, the, there's a pretty un... It's not like you and I will come up with a new answer that's going to really solve it for the rest of the world, but... Well, what are we doing here then? Yeah. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> that's what I came here to do. Yeah. Well, okay. Maybe we will. Maybe we will. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be so negative. Sorry. Yeah. No, I mean, there's a question there of just like what path we're on. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think, yeah, like, uh, I sometimes think if we can't figure this out one way or another, I think the path we might be on, and you can tell me what you think about this. I wonder if we're on a path where art and the consumption of art becomes free for people to consume and where, where it'll, if it is financed, which it, won't necessarily be but if mm-hmm. it is financed that it will be through things like strictly sponsorship and ad revenue that's yeah. associated yeah. with art and platforms and whatnot yeah quite possibly um because yeah i mean definitely a lot of the old models no longer work for um how to make money out of art yeah um and especially yeah it's like uh, totally get it i mean if, if you can get everything for free it's hard to make yourself pay for something <laughs> Or for just, you know, that $5 a month Spotify subscription or whatever it is. It's, you know, it's, it's hard to go out there and spend 25 bucks on a vinyl record or yeah. anything else when, when it's so accessible now. Um, I'm sorry, I, I kind of lost the thread. What was your When you're on Kindle, your do you, yeah. when you switch a page on Kindle, yeah. will it occasionally show an advertisement? Like so, I just do the app on the phone, so it doesn't on the phone app. I'm not sure about the an actual, I don't have a, Gwen, my partner has a, an actual Kindle. I, I don't know if they do on the actual Kindle devices or not. I wonder, I don't know the answer to that either, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I think, I, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like what we're looking forward to in the future, if there's money affiliate, mm-hmm. if there's money that is associated with art, which this is another thing that I think people don't like to acknowledge a lot of the time, but it's only been what, like it's only been maybe a, almost a hundred years or something that the idea of making money from the arts has been as maybe the, the obvious priority, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, sure, that it has sure. been. Yeah. 
Like there was a time before all this where art wasn't necessarily the commodity that mm-hmm. it is and that we, we yeah. still did it, especially in the early of course, stages of, of art. Like yeah. we, we did it anyway. Um, it's just nice to be able like, it's just nice to be able to do it professionally. And so if that's what we're trying to do, I think, I think that it's going to be like, I don't know, you would, you'll experience all music for free, mm-hmm. but if you're a professional musician, you'll basically have a bunch of sponsorships and endorsements yeah, and that's yeah. the only way you'll make money from it. I, I would love to, I would love to live in a country civilized enough that there was government money to pay artists um, and, you know, to help, help make that happen. But yeah, that, that's, we seem very far from that in the, in the U S these days. Um, I've got a, uh, I know a woman, a Canadian woman who, who um, was able to put out a, her first novel and, Basically, it was sort of government-funded mm. in Canada, and I just think that uh, I get the impression that there are parts of the world where that's much more. You you have much more sort of public support of the arts than we do here. Um, but I've also thought about with with newspapers and with with music and a lot of other things. I'd love to see some kind of um, just subscription service, just kind of like you know, just uh, I guess Patreon kind of thing, but maybe in a more um, less individual kind of way if there was more of a sort of collective you know we all contribute 10 bucks a month to this and a bunch of writers or musicians or you know visual artists or whatever you know get get at least partial you know if not enough to make a full living at least they get some you know they don't have to work all the time they have you know on on other on day jobs or whatever they they you know, have enough money coming in to, to support doing their work doing their art as the season changes here in the triad so does the feeling of being outdoors the humidity lessens the mosquitoes start to disappear it's just more comfortable but as those things drop so do the temperatures so how do you make sure you can still enjoy being outside well here's a solution how about a screened in porch with a fireplace i feel more relaxed just reading that sentence Our friends at Icon Custom Builders have been transforming homes in the triad since 2005 and can help clients enjoy their homes year-round, through all seasons. Whatever is on your wish list, large or small, Icon can help. You dream it, and their full-service design-build team can turn it into reality by guiding you through every step of the process. Just visit their website, iconcustombuilders.com, to schedule a consultation and start your dream project today. That's sort of what I was trying to do with face paint. If you yeah, remember that, yeah, sure. that project, which was a fine, which was fine. But yeah, I mean, it's all it, all that model does is shift it from instead of people buying the pro and they do this. It's mm-hmm. so weird that this is the case. Cause it's the same thing. If you go out and buy a copy of Rolling Stone, the profit that, or, you know, the, part of the money that you spend on that, that they get back goes into their operation costs. Mm-hmm. And sure. Some of that might be a profit margin, but probably not as much as people think like yeah, the, it yeah. costs, costs a lot of money to run that business. Yeah. All we're doing if we switch to a model like that is making the public know that the money that they're spending is going toward the people that create the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's all we're doing is we're telling them that that's what it is. Like yours, your money goes straight to this effort to support this. And, uh, funny enough, some people really are attracted to that and will do it, you know, mm-hmm. which, which I think is cool. But yeah, I think like, I think models like that are probably going to pop up more and more. You yeah. Know? Yeah. P- 
people giving a shit about the about the principle that there is because in principle I don't I don't think people people in principle don't agree with the way that things are shaping up with the market mm-hmm. but when it comes to their own convenience and their saved money you know that's where it like you said becomes the issue you know if if people don't have to go out and spend that twenty five dollars on vinyl mm-hmm. they're not going to yeah yeah. And, you know, probably you, me, a lot of people we know don't have a, you know, tons of disposable income. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's, you know, sort of the, the physical, you know, books, books are really expensive now. Vinyl records are really expensive. It's, you know, you, you kind of have to have a lot of disposable income to, to be a regular consumer of those things. And it's yeah. just not, you know, th- there was a time when a lot of that stuff was, you know, sort of the dime store what's the, the what's the phrase but like the you know the the pulp fiction like early sort of detective novels would cost a dime which you know was a lot more back then than it is now but it's just you know a lot of a lot of art was pretty disposable and pretty um you know just very affordable by the average person and i feel like you know with books records concert tickets you name it it's like all that stuff is really expensive these days and yeah it's, it's hard for people to to uh, which again, it, I think goes back to why people do things like streaming or just downloading or whatever. It, it's it's cheap and easy, and that's what it's a natural thing to do. Which is a really fair thing to point out because in in that way, I mean, like if if things like Pandora and things like Spotify, if they if there hadn't been a demand for those things, you know, then maybe they wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, like we've had a very long history of a lot of people the top the the upper echelons of the arts industry specifically i'm talking about music we've Mm -hmm. had a we've had a very long time of of people being at the top of that mountain and making a lot of money oh yeah and uh (laughs) and really other people not really having the same access to the 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 platforms and stuff for sure that your music can exist on and yeah the the gatekeepers Kept kept a lot of people out of it for a absolutely, long time. and it's still. That's I mean, strange. it feels like there's still there's still a dynamic there that is a lot to overcome. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. I mean, there's a lot of there's a to be real. There's a lot of uh, financial greed, whatever, within mm-hmm. the arts that probably did produce a lot of this stuff. Because, like we said, it used to be kind of a cultural commodity more so than a than one that was oh for sure yeah like meant strictly for profit. Yep. Yeah. So although the profit stuff goes back so far <laughs> i'm sure i mean there's plenty of just people you know sort of itinerant musicians that would go around and play for parties and things and that you know that, that's obviously not a big sort of you know that's not a career yeah um, but i remember watching a, an american experience on stephen foster years ago and the big thing in his era was sheet music that's that's how he made his money was from sheet music sales because it was you know pre pre-recordings and, um, you know, the sheet music publishers screwed him just as badly as mm-hmm. record companies screwed people in the 20th <laughs> century. So it's, it's, they it's, always screw yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. Damn it. So what about you might be the dude that knows the answer to this. Like yeah. when we think of these icons like Johnny Cash, Dog, John Prine, mm-hmm. uh, Bob Dylan. I wonder if we did. Do you think these guys set out? I mean, I think some. I think we know these. I know the answer to some things, uh, to to some of these examples. But still, you can give me your two cents on yeah. the difference between like if whether these guys set out for a music career in the same way that like me and my peers did. Like if they had the same thing in mind, or if it was like a totally different 
did they even did did all these guys even give a shit about that? Um, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I think they, um, you know, they were they were chasing the chasing the dream. I think, and you know, obviously a different approach. You know, like Dylan versus Cash is a mm-hmm. different different approach to to making it. But yeah, you know, I think they all wanted to. You know, they kind of all wanted to be stars. They all wanted to have their voices heard by as many people as possible. I mean, um, not in a conventional. You know, they 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 weren't trying to be, um, you know, Frank Sinatra or some just sort of a a pop star. But but they're, I, I think you know, I, I think that's a pretty big drive, a consistent drive. And I'm not saying you know, like you and your friends or have that same you know attitude. But I do think with with some of the people you mentioned, there there is definitely that that element of you know i want to you know i want to take this as far as it can go yeah i don't know what do you think i feel like i get that impression with a lot of people Mm -hmm. johnny cash sam cook Mm -hmm. um i forget who else i mentioned i i I think when i've heard john prine talk about music it has been with an attitude of of seriousness and business and personalization and like the the desire for success yeah the question mark for me is dylan like Whether he, I, I think I have this perception of Dylan that he just showed up at the New Fort Folk Festival mm-hmm. and accidentally got famous and then uh, changed the world or something. <laughs> <laughs> I've read a lot about Dylan, and he was he was pretty calculating from the beginning. And really, was my my impression of it. Yeah, was, I mean, you know, he played in a dance band in high school, and uh, you know, he just kind of uh, you, you could never call Dylan a phony by any means, but you know, he but he also kind of. You know, he knew which way the wind was blowing. He, you know, no, no pun intended. <laughs> and just he would, um, you know, he kind of saw where he could make an impact, and and you know, like you know, and kind of did the folk thing. And then when he got tired of that, he he heard the Beatles, and it's like that looks like a lot more fun. And you know, he kind of did it all very much his own way. But I think I think he always wanted to be kind of a, a pop star in in his own very weird way. Yeah, and, and he succeeded. So you know. Um, but with Prine, I think Prine is actually it's a, he he is an exception to that though. I mean, I, I don't think I, I think he's kind of like one of the most the least ambitious people I've mm. ever written about. Really? <laughs> yeah, I th- I th- he was obviously proud of his songs, but uh, it took a long time for him to even kind of think of himself as a songwriter. He he would I talk about it in the book. He would say, "I'm I'm I made up songs." I would tell people I made up songs, but. He, it's like he thought that was something different from being, you know, Bob Dylan or mm. Pete Seeger or whoever. That you know, that those were real songwriters, and he was just a kid that made up songs. <laughs> and so it took him a long time to think, you know, I think to realize that he was actually a peer of people like Dylan and not just this sort of, you know, hobbyist. Yeah, um, but yeah, which is crazy to hear yeah, you yeah, say. But yeah. and yeah, he worked as a mailman, like way up to. Pretty close to when he actually got a record deal, he was still delivering mail, and you know some some friends basically dared him to go on stage at an open mic night, and that's you know he he would just kind of play his friend play his songs for friends, and you know, his brother was a musician, so he and his brother would mess around with his songs in his bedroom, but um, yeah, it was definitely not like. I've got a burning desire to be, you know, top of the charts. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was just this kind of a hobby and he didn't take himself that seriously. And then, but once he started playing the songs in public, he started seeing the reaction and um, just, you know, I think he realized fairly quickly that he had something pretty substantial happening that it mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, that it was more than just a, a goofy little hobby. Um, but yeah. And he was, was um, 
kind of going off on a whole prime tangent here. That's cool. He was um, good friends with Steve Goodman, who wrote most famous for writing the city of New Orleans, which um, Willie Nelson did a version of it. Arlo Guthrie had a big hit with it. Um, Goodman was never, never really a, a star in his own right, but wrote a lot of great songs and was just a, you know, kind of larger than life personality. Um, but Goodman really pushed Prine, and I'll talk about that in the book. Um, Goodman had leukemia and ended up dying in his mid-30s maybe when he died. So mm. you get the sense that he knew, you know, he had a very short fuse. He, he kind of had to make the most of what whatever life he was going to get. And um, I think he really pushed Prine to, to go for it. And, mm. and they ended up um, – Goodman was opening for Chris Christopherson. I think I get get the people because Chris Christopherson and Paul Anka were hanging out, which is a really weird combination. Anka was this like '50s pop star and um, wrote did some really cheesy '70s songs, but he was wanting to get into management. And um, there was I can't remember they were all in Chicago, and uh, Goodman and Prime were from Chicago. But um, I think I think it was that Goodman was opening for Christopherson, and Anka was around because he was managing Christopherson. And so Goodman kept bugging Christofferson to come hear Prine sing. And Christofferson kept blowing him off, blowing him off, and finally came over like the last night. They were doing like a two-week run at a club in Chicago. And finally the last night comes over to, to hear Prine. It kind of indulged Goodman. And, of course, was just blown away. Like a lot of the songs ended up, ended up on Prine's first album he had already written. And um, he sang them all for, for Christofferson and Anka and whoever else was, was sitting around. And Christofferson made him sing them all again because he liked them so much. <laughs> and then I think Anka paid for Prine and Goodman to go to New York, and they both got record deals like immediately. Damn. Just kind of like falling out of the boat, you know, <laughs> with, with, you know fish jumping in the boat. I guess what's the, falling off a log is the, the phrase I was trying to go for there. But mm. uh, just very easy, you know, sort of, you know, people chase that dream for decades sometimes and with Prine and Goodman it was just here you go yeah <laughs> here's a record deal you're on you're on Atlantic Records with you know, Led Zeppelin and Aretha Franklin now um, so yeah <laughs> with Prine it was just yeah I think he got more ambitious as he went along in some ways but yeah the, the, early on he it, it really just kind of fell into his lap and was not not planned at all like I mentioned Dylan being kind of a schemer and mm-hmm. you know, sort of following you know, look, looking for ends where he could sort of make an impact. And I don't think Brian was like that at all. Damn Dylan. <laughs> That's quite the story. It reminds me of, uh, I mean, Ray LaMontagne kind of had mm-hmm. a similar uh, pace, you yeah. know, just kind of quick lightning bolt. Yeah. I think yeah. he didn't even start pursuing it until he was uh, approaching 30. Okay. And then he was in okay. his 30s before wow. he, um, before he, like record anything independently and then yeah. before long he was on RCA and it yeah. was like without yeah. any of what we do now without this thing and that's that's what bothers me I, I get it but it does disappoint me about the model these days is like you you have to pop on social media before you yeah. like well before a record label will look at you and yeah. now there's even a question of whether whether it makes a difference if a record label looks at you yeah. you know and that's cool in a way it's cool in a way. It's just. I'm sure I, there are certain people that you really need that, but there's certain people that you're glad it happens. Yeah, but yeah. there's there's the, the I think the unfortunate thing about it is like that social media is a different game than the craft of music. Oh, of course, yeah. That's what's disappointing. Is like when 
when you when you finally when you come across somebody on social media and they I don't know somebody all of a sudden follows you on Instagram or something you look and it's a musician mm-hmm. and their their pictures look all great and blah 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 and you look and they have 200,000 followers yeah. or whatever yeah. they're really good at Instagram yeah. it doesn't you know it, they might be really good at music I was say they may or may not be good at music <laughs> exactly yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's 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 a frustration to me with I'm sure I'm far from the only person who like, you know, I don't want to be a marketing person. I want to write. Yeah, (laughs) I know. I don't want to be the social media influencer. I don't want to be the marketing guy. I don't want to, it's just like, there's so much you're expected to, to do now. And I would happily turn all that over to somebody else if I was rich and famous. Yeah. um, And I don't, I don't do nearly enough of it as it is, but you know, it's just, I I just want to do, do the work. Yeah. It's not your craft. Yeah. 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 And it actually, it, might work against your craft in some some way. That's yeah. how it feels for me. Yeah. I I feel dead <laughs> when I do that stuff. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Do you have like um number one songwriter or in the top five or ten that you go to that are like your uh you know pride and joys? Uh, let's see. Well, I've mentioned the Kinks more than once. Ray Davis from the Kinks. Um, Prine for sure. Dylan. Who else? Um, there's somebody I was just thinking about a minute ago. Um, Jonathan Bird. I don't know if you mm. know Jonathan stuff, but uh, I think he's the best songwriter ever out of North Carolina. Really? Yeah. Damn. Um, God, who? I feel like I'm going to leave out 500 people. Um, Sly Stone, I'd put way up there. Um, I'm trying to think of somebody from, you know, not from 60 years ago, too. <laughs> uh, well, Jonathan Bird is contemporary. Yeah. Um, but who else? Let me, let me think of another couple. Of, um, I don't know. I, 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 there's, there's, you know, 50 people I'm not, that are not coming to mind right now, but that's a, that's a short list. This show is presented by The Ginther Group, a real estate team based right here in the triad and the only ones we trust here on the Triad Podcast Network. I've been podcasting with Blake Ginther and his team for a few years now, always blown away by how well the experts at the Ginther Group can make sense of a rapidly changing and oftentimes chaotic real estate market. I know I feel smarter after each episode we record right here on the Triad Podcast Network. Then when it came to sell a home, I chose the Ginther Group. They steered me in the right direction at all times in terms of how much time and money to invest in order to maximize the things I wanted out of the transaction. And we ended up selling for nearly 10% above asking. Look, I can't guarantee you the same results, but why wouldn't you at least meet with them and see what's possible? Call 336-283-8689 or visit theginthergroup.com to see if The Ginther Group can help you own your future. Now back to the show. What are the odds you'll ever write a biography on Tom Waits? It would be interesting. Um... (laughs) I don't know, you know, I don't know him that well. Mm. Um, I like what I've heard, but I've got kind of, kind of spotty on, you know, like, and me and my friend Lisa will kick me for this cause she's a huge Tom Waits fan. I see the, the orphans box over there. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, he's a fascinating character and I'm sure it'd be a, you know, really interesting to hang out with him and get his life story. But I, I kind of, he seems like the kind of person that might write a memoir, but I doubt he'd be super cooperative Shit. with somebody doing a, 
Yeah, I, I have heard him. I th- I believe he's pretty careful about his image and yeah, about like yeah. all that. And so yeah. he probably does. But I wonder if he would write a memoir because like I think he likes the mystery. I think oh, he yeah, likes yeah. being the shadow figure, you yeah. know, that quite possibly. Did you read uh, Ricky Lee Jones memoir by any chance? Mm-mm. She dated Waits for a while and, and she, she does. She kind of pulls the pulls the curtain back a little uh, bit on, on Waits in the 70s. So I watched this really long sort of like a biography, sort of like a, a, a synopsis of his whole discography yeah. on YouTube one day. Yeah, it's maybe yeah, I think it was during quarantine. And uh, they, I think, refer to her book and okay. talk about the first time she met him and how she came. I think it, I think that was who it was who um, came over to his house, and he, <laughs> and he had a refri- <laughs> he had a refrigerator in the living room. Okay, and she <laughs> and uh, she was like, "What's this for?" And he opened it, and it was full of like metal tools, like wrenches and stuff. Okay, and he was like, "For tools, there's some pretty cool stuff in here." <laughs> That's his, that's his tool cabinet. Yeah, tool nice. cabinet. That, that sounds like a Tom Waits kind of thing. I think he really is that guy. Yeah, and like, yeah. You know some people who just can't be conventional and normal, yeah, yeah, and I, yeah. I think he really is that dude in a lot of ways. He's not like Alice Cooper going to the golf course, you know. Right. So. Or like, yeah, like, I don't, like, and, and I, one time uh, I saw Marilyn Manson on something, and they they my dad pointed out to me he was like he thought this was like a weird thing yeah but they somebody asked him like someone referred to his wardrobe on stage as a costume yeah and he was like well sure but you're wearing like a you're wearing like jeans and a rock and roll t-shirt and like tennis shoes like you're mm-hmm. wearing a rock and roll costume that's your costume you know yeah. everyone does yeah. like people dress for a particular identity and yeah. I'm dressed yeah. as a thing that symbolizes that on stage or whatever. And, um, yeah, I think that's, that's true. And, um, yeah, I remember, um, I think it was Jeff, Jeffrey Dean Foster, the Winston Salem musician said one time that Manson actually like that Marilyn Manson would kind of require everybody to like, he didn't want people who were faking it, but you know, you'd kind of have to stay in persona off stage. I'm trying to remember the, mm. the way he put it, but it's like, you were kind of expected to, you know, embrace the lifestyle and not just, you know, you know, just, which is, just, just yeah. act it out on stage, which is very method and interesting. Yeah. I yeah. like when it comes down to it, I struggle with this a lot, man. Cause like we do see that there is an identity of a musician and it's not, it's not just for comfort and it's mm-hmm. not just like I wear this, you know, whatever. I wear this style of boots because it's so utilitarian or I wear this hat because it protects my neck from the sun or whatever. Like, no, that's, these things aren't just natural products of who we are Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and sometimes I feel in conflict with that because I'm trying to figure out, well, what that, what does that mean? Exactly. I was going to say that, that this brings up your whole, you know, you, you kind of went from the, the sincere singer songwriter thing to that, you know, sort of going in a little different, different persona, different direction, at least for a while. I'm not sure what you've, what you've been up to just recently, but I guess that was sort of maybe pre pandemic. You started doing a little more character driven mm-hmm. songs and dressing a little different and playing with a band and just, you know, talk, talk about that a little bit. 
Yeah, man. I remember back in the day when I was like the earliest days of the trio, we didn't give a damn what we looked like. Like mm-hmm. we, I, and, and I thought that that was true. Yeah. And I think now looking back, I'm not sure how true it was, you know, but you were trying hard to look like you didn't give a damn. Maybe. Yeah. Like maybe yeah. that was, yeah. and I, I resented that idea so yeah. much. Like yeah. I, I remember moments of that. I remember like not wanting to know that that was true. So I w- wanting to believe that what I was doing was just pure nat- nature or mm-hmm. something. Yeah. And I remember like I had this, I had this hat I would wear that had a hole in it. And my mom was like, why don't you get a different hat? And I was like, this one's fine. And she would, she said something like, it's your look or something. Mm. And I was like, Ugh, like, <laughs> don't, don't acknowledge that. Yeah, like, yeah. It, no, I'm just, I'm just truly me. Yeah, and yeah. There was something There's nothing under, calculated about right. this. Yeah. It's all yeah. accidental. It's yeah. all pure. Yeah. I don't remember what, like, I don't know, man. It just, it felt so undeveloped in a way. Hmm. And that was how it was for a long time. And then something was born along the way where, I don't know, things started to feel narrower. Mm-hmm. And it was like, yeah, the end of the trio we wore some suits for some shows and I think I was just going through a strange identity crisis around that time. And like a lot of things were coming to a head. Like, you know, I think, I think when I was younger, I also thought that, um, I was naturally Christian and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then to learn that that wasn't natural either, that that was like put into my mind. Of course. Yeah. This whole facade, you, you I don't think. grow up around here without being heavily, and even if your family's not religious, you're going to absorb a lot of it, I think. And if your family is religious, you're really, you're really going to. Absorb going to. It, so, yeah. it definitely is a huge part of the culture that surrounds yeah. us all yeah. the time. And, you know, even like, I don't know, the degree to which we're polite to one another, mm-hmm. expected to be in society, whether yeah. you wave at neighbors and stuff. Yeah. It's like, if you don't, if you're, if you're seen as some kind of, asshole mm-hmm. you know then that's not being godly or whatever yeah, yeah. i think a lot of that stuff was starting to fall apart for me um of course i went from being religious to like not being religious mm-hmm. at all and then i think i went from like i went from this state of mind of being like not like like i don't have to be in control of my identity i'm just like naturally who i am mm-hmm. to then feeling like well i have to like take control of my identity. So then I started wearing the suit on mm-hmm. stage yeah. and you know, I, the, the show got different. The songs got different. It wasn't so much about experiencing and observing life so much as like writing a message about male sexuality mm-hmm. and about, you know, like whether you're going to embody the, you know, sort of the motivations of the left side of the spectrum or the right side of the mm-hmm. spectrum and aggression or non-aggression and yeah. Yeah. all this stuff trying to figure out who my identity was actually supposed to be. And uh, that didn't really, it wasn't a very comfortable project. It <laughs> wasn't a very comfortable exploration. Yeah, it, it felt pretty, I don't know, impossible in a lot of ways. And it got dark in a lot of ways. And uh, so then I put out an album called Devil. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the, that was like the end of it all. Okay, okay. And it was after Devil... Because with Devil, I just kind of like, I reached this point of, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I was, I was, it was the, it was like the, what is the term, pinhead or something? It was like the, 
point at which everything came to from mm-hmm. this whole yeah. change. Yeah. Um, and one time when I was in the midst of all this like atheism stuff mm-hmm. and acting all bombastic, I guess about like how not Christian I was, yeah. how like countercultural yeah. I was, yeah. I, had this dream that to save in details, I guess I had this dream that I legitimately met the devil. Oh, wow. Okay. And that like it, it fucked me up. It scared the hell out of me. Yeah. I had multiple dreams about the devil and it, it was like, it was like my mind was confronting the fact that I was like, um, like this pursuit of mine or this like, the way I was expressing myself around this time was like insincere Hmm. or like didn't know what it was talking about. Okay. So this devil album was kind of about like about that, about my personal stuff with love and with different things, but also kind of acknowledging this reality in the world that is cruel and mean and like can't be laughed at or fucked with or whatever in the wrong way. Like it's a real danger. And, uh, I think that to me, for some reason, was a really, that was something really important to my identity that I needed to acknowledge about the world before I could move on hmm. or something. Um, and since like, then, I feel as like though you're playing with fire a little bit. Is that? Yeah, I think so. Am I getting the, the just or not? not I think like. <laughs> am I understanding what you're trying to say? Yeah, I, I think it was something like, it's hard to explain, man, but yeah. it's it's like. I know what it felt like to experience it, but I think, I think basically it was something like integrating my understanding of danger and mm-hmm. mortality and like the, the reality of my own mortality, integrating that into myself mm-hmm. and, and, and letting that be a reality. I think, I think my aggressive side was like aggressive toward the wrong things. Hmm. Okay. And then I, through these, through this time period and different experiences I was having, I was trying to learn how to like, understand that life is finite and and like what I do makes a difference yeah, or something. Yeah. And I wrote this song Devil and a Dead Man that's that's like been out for since uh, almost a year ago. Mm-hmm. That was like when I was when I first started talking to you about coming over here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah, Devil and a Dead Man was kind of the crucial piece from that album, I think. And it was really just an acknowledgement of something like there's a reality that we don't like to acknowledge and it, it it could come take all of us out. It could any of us, if we fucked with it the wrong way, it would like put us in our place immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is And what do you do with that knowledge? Like when you know that you're a lot more careful, maybe yeah. life isn't all just about being carefree and being spontaneous yeah, and not giving yeah. a shit and, and thinking that you're invincible yeah, that, and that's, yeah. that's it. That's what I've been trying to get okay, to. Okay. I know I went the long way around the barn, <laughs> but right. there's something about, I think when you're young, you don't fully grasp your mortality and there's something sure, about yeah. like fully grasping danger and threat that yeah. I think makes you grow up a little bit yeah. and makes you see, see shit that. as like, uh, it makes you, yeah, just make, it wakes you up a little bit more yeah. to the realities of life. And affects the way you treat other people, I think. Quite yeah. A bit. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think one thing that can be tricky with, you know, life in general or creative stuff is like, on the one hand, you don't want to just be sort of, you know, sunshine and puppies and kittens and just, you know, 
pretend everything's all you know light and light and happy all the time but on the other hand it's like there's there's enough bad shit in the world that i don't want to add to it Mm -hmm. (laughs) i don't want to make people miserable yeah and so sort of trying to find the balance of you know doing good in the world putting good out in the world without being you know sort of you know acknowledging the the dark side but not sort of amplifying the dark side or uh, i don't know if i'm articulating that very well but maybe breeding the dark side or something yeah. yeah yeah Yeah, I think there's some that's that's real. And I I think I think, too, it sounds a bit cliche, maybe, but, you know, the sunshine and rainbow stuff, it's like maybe there's a maybe there's a broad maybe there's a higher level of innocence or happiness or something that you can reach. But, you know, you can't reach it without that. You will appreciate it more Mm -hmm. if you know what it means to to acknowledge the dark side of the world, you know. I, I, think I know a lot people, of truth to that. Yeah. people say that stuff all the time and just kind of take it for granted. But mm-hmm. like doing some work, I think for me to understand it truly, that's what yeah. some of this yeah. was about was like, I mean, at the time I was reading, <laughs> this was in a time where I was reading the Gulag Archipelago. Yeah. Like I was interested in some writers and some thinkers who were exposing me, I think to, realities that that even still we're having a hard time in the culture contending with Mm -hmm. we're having a hard time being willing to acknowledge that there's restraints in life and that like there's dangers in life that cannot be wished away yeah for sure you know and i I think for me it was it was like okay i have to accept at this point that there's there's dangers in life that can't be wished away and and i think that's made me i mean it's made me a lot more sentimental it's made me a lot more like like I don't know when I see something that warms me up, it makes me a lot more likely to like shed a tear over yeah, it or something. Yeah. So maybe a little more, a little more vulnerable, a little more emotionally open, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. Which COVID also influenced. Well, yeah, there is that. Yeah. Well, actually one thing that what you're just saying reminded me of, I told you I was listening to the, um, your, your conversation with Tori Elliott on the way over mm-hmm. to your place today. And um, you're talking about just sort of she. I know she mentioned the word existentialism a couple of times, sort of existential crises. And um, one thing that's really hit me the last couple of years is having pets. And it's like if I start, my brain starts going down some really dark, you know, trying to understand the universe or trying to understand, you know, dark forces or whatever. It's like I'll stop and think: Does my dog ever worry about that? Does my cat ever worry about that? No. <laughs> And I remember a quote, I don't have no idea where I got this from, but um, it was like from a memoir or something that somebody was saying, you know, like they were trying to explain to their grandmother or somebody about, you know, these, you know, trying to comprehend the universe or some, some really profound thought. And the grandmother goes, why is that any of your goddamn business? <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's something to that. It's like, just don't, you know. Don't don't hide your head in the sand, but don't waste too much of your life pondering shit you can't figure out, and that you you know just there's there's much better you know much better ways to spend your your mental energy I think than, yeah. than wallowing in that stuff I think yeah I think <laughs> I think I think those are some wise words yeah. Uh, yeah I have this neighbor who's wiser than I and yeah one of his catchphrases seems to be uh, we don't worry about shit like that yeah. No. it'll be something stupid or it could be something big you know yeah, yeah. Uh, he i think is puzzled by some of my interests and yeah, some of the things yeah. that my head gets wrapped around sure, but yeah. i don't know like one time i left he let me borrow a hammer and i let it get rained on and ah. i was like man 
your hammer got rammed. Sorry, sorry about that. And he yeah. said, "We don't worry about shit like that." <laughs> <laughs> That's a good attitude. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Like, I mean, what? 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 How do you pursue happiness? Hmm. That's an interesting question. It's one that I've been meaning to ask more people. Yeah. yeah. Because, because of people like my neighbor who seem to just choose to go that route, yeah. and that yeah. puzzles me. Yeah. Because I don't know what that's like all the time. Um. Yeah. I mean, sim- simple pleasures is definitely a part of it. Just you know, taking my dog for a walk. You know, spending time with Gwen. Um, you know, watching watching what we do in the shadows <laughs> just listening to good music i think it's not a lot more complicated than that in some ways and that doesn't mean it always works i mean you know, i definitely have my depressive episodes and you know we'll try to find something to make me happy and nothing will do it some days and you know it's, it's not always just push a button and you're happy but yeah um yeah, I mean, I really do think it's you know spending time with my my sons. I've got a grandson now. Spending time, you know, wish he lived closer, but um, you know, just just family, friends, pets, hiking, you know, just stuff like that. Going to hear music, listening to music. Those are all like tried and true methods for me, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how that, about you? Yeah. That should be, and that's like universal answers right there. I feel yeah. like, and yeah. that's like things that we. Um, that, that's an, let me figure out what I'm trying to say. I feel as though sometimes people want to like kind of what you were just hinting at, like overcomplicate even the idea of those simple things mm-hmm. that we, that we have always looked for. We all have, our species always needs companionship. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we need family. Like yeah. family is a positive. It creates positive yeah. and shit. Whether in our it's brains, actual family or the family you create. Chosen. Yeah. Fa- yeah. 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 Um, nature. Nature seems to be a really positive thing for a lot uh, of people. Like yeah. And that I've learned that in you know late, later in my adult life. Like probably yeah, I wish I'd learned that sooner. Just how important it is. Just to, you know, just go up a mountain sometimes. Just get mm-hmm. out in the woods. <laughs> just you know. Get, yeah. Get closer to nature. Which that's. Uh, I don't have an answer necessarily. I mean, I, I think that's part of it lately. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Lately, this year, getting out at, in my little tiny garden mm-hmm. or strolling yeah. around in the trees—that's been my pleasure uh, yeah. and, and a way to calm my mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. So, what is your approach to nature? You like to go hiking? Oh yeah, I love to go hiking. Um, you know, my dog loves to hike, <laughs> so it's. That's a good excuse, and it just and I've also just tried to tried to be more active, and having having a dog really helps with that. Just having to get out and walk the dog every day is a big help with that, and going hiking because yeah, there there was a period of my life where I was pretty pretty inactive, and I'm not you know certainly not a marathon runner these days, but I'm much more active on a daily basis than I used to be, and that really seems to help. You know, it's keep me keep me happy, healthy on much more of an even keel than yeah. when I was not so active. So. Yeah, but yeah, I love. That's uh, one of the things, you know, a little, little plug for State Park, Hanging Rock State Park, I think is just, it's a, this amazing resource we've got just down the road here. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's kind of a, it's this weird little mountain off by itself, but it's just such a great place to go hiking. Yeah, I can't, I sometimes can't believe it's right here. Yeah. Like yeah. it's so weird. <laughs> yeah. All these little mountains here that are, that are, that's standalone mountains, they're so weird, mm-hmm. but they just hang out there. Yeah. 
but yeah, like like doing rail trails, riding bike on rail trails. There's a lot of good rail trails, and especially in Vir- Southern Virginia, the uh, New River Trail and mm-hmm. the, um, Virginia Creeper Trail are both pretty amazing. You bike up there, mm-hmm. and play disc golf, and just you know try to don't don't have any. Oh, I've been playing tennis a lot lately too. That's been another physical thing I've been doing. It's, my friend Lisa, I mentioned earlier, the big Tom Waits fan. She um, she moved down from Baltimore a couple of years ago, and um, we we try to play tennis. Almost once a week. We don't quite make it every week. But, mm. um, that has that has been a real joy. I, I played some in high school, and it's just been great getting back to that after all these years. I heard we we showed a movie at Aperture once about like a a club of like senior senior citizens mm-hmm. who played tennis, and the quote affiliated with it with the film was something like, uh, "If you start playing tennis at sixty, you'll have thirty years to master the game." Yeah, or something. Yeah. Because tennis is one of the things that keeps you alive, I guess. Yeah. Uh, well, our next door neighbor is. Um, uh, I, I won't go too deep into my guessing her age, but <laughs> she's in her sixties <laughs> for sure, and plays like a lot of senior tennis tournaments and stuff. And she just seems just incredibly healthy. Yeah. Um, so anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> um. Okay, so and I should check the time. I'm not sure. Yeah, if you've got time, I've got a final question, or if you need to go, we can just call it. No, I'm good. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Okay, um, we can wrap it up around this subject. Now that you, now that you have this book completed, mm-hmm. this, um, are you going to be in a period of taking a break, or what? Ha- like, what is this time period like for you now that you've? I guess you've you've got a first draft done, so yeah. you're not totally out of the woods. But yeah. once it's done, what comes next for you? Trying to make some money. <laughs> I've been I've been kind of limping along for um, have to have to give a shout out to Gwen. She's she's had to be way more supportive than I would have liked, just because I've you know done freelance to pay the bills, but I've I've really had to just dive back into just making some money because I've, I've gone several years with sort of, you know, minimal income trying mm. to get this book done. So, you know, w- would love to have a, a loftier answer to that and, you know, have some great, you know, great project I'm working on, but it's really just about kind of getting, getting back on my feet financially right now. That's, that's the, the big focus. Yeah. All right. Do you, um, and I should mention, speaking of books, there is a, a new version of the prime book out. Um, oh yeah. As of, Late spring, I'm not sure exactly when it came out, but um, after he he died of COVID, of course, in twenty mm-hmm. early 2020, he was one of the kind of one of the first sort of prominent people to die of COVID. But um, at some point after that, my publisher asked me to write a, an afterward because the book came out before he died. So um, just kind of talking about his his last album, which was amazing, and his death, and kind of the reaction to his death, and so mm-hmm. I did a kind of an extra chapter at the end talking about all that. So that's that's you know. If you have a copy of the book, you need to go buy another one. Mm. Hell yeah. Because <laughs> there's all of this new stuff in there. Did that one did that one hit you hard? Oh yeah. 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 I hated hated to see that. It seemed to hit ever like Yeah. It, I don't know. It hit it hit yeah, it hit the world hard. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Yeah, I was actually looking he was supposed to play Merlefest that spring. I was really looking forward to I had not seen him in a while and was really looking forward to seeing him at Merlefest. Just yeah, he's got He's got kids. He's got grandkids now, and just you know, seemed, has seemed really happy in his his fi- third and final marriage. Just and you know, was was collaborating with Brandy Carlisle and just a lot of you know younger musicians and um, Casey Musgraves and people like that. And you know, just just had hit a really great stride in his life in recent years. And so it's kind of 
that much more sort of poignant that, you know, it's one thing if somebody's sort of faded and, you know, not really active anymore and just, you know, like their best years are way behind them. But Brian was kind of right there. I mean, he mm. was like, you know, he had just started a music festival in Costa Rica, I think, somewhere down that way. And, mm. you know, just uh, he had a, a lot going on and just seemed like a really, you know, really happy engaged person and that, that made it that much more poignant that you know that he died i mean it's good good that he kind of went out on top in a way but yeah that much sadder that you know, you know he, he had was, was kind of living his best life when, when he got taken yeah yeah there's also this weird second stretch that seems to happen in some of these guys lives mm-hmm. like with with I mean, I guess he is one of three that come to mind of yeah. guys like him, maybe more, maybe four, uh, who lived to that age mm-hmm. or who lived to an older age, yeah. uh, who have like this, this, I don't know, this blooming period in their life. Yeah. Uh, John Prine, Johnny Cash, yeah. Levon Helm, yeah. and even Willie Nelson, who is, who didn't really, I don't feel like ever came back. He just has always kind of stayed at a certain place. Yeah. Yeah. But Johnny, Levon, and and John Prine, all those are great examples. Yeah, yeah kind of had this this second thing, this yeah. like legacy sort of establishing mm-hmm. period of their yeah. of their careers. And Prine especially just got you know was so embraced by like the Americana community and just young young songwriters. Just he, yeah, I think he's like a lot of people's favorite songwriter. Yeah, and that and that really became very well known. You know, the last ten years or so, and that was that was nice to see. Mm, yeah, and Johnny Cash. Uh, speaking of Cash, he he once said that Prine was one of his four favorite songwriters. Yeah, I think uh, songwriters. He's on up there for me for sure. Yeah, you know he does he uh, do uh, do you um, listen at all to Daniel Johnston? Is I'm trying. To, I think I know who you're talking about. Really strange guy. Yeah. I, no, I mean I'm, I'm vaguely, obviously, very vaguely aware of who he is. Um, what was that song? It's like speeding motorcycle, something like that. I remember a version of that being out there. Anyway, yeah. yeah. What about him? He's he's a uh, guy that I'm you know know the name, but on not the much more. Spectrum yeah. of types, of, like individuals who reach a, di- a certain level of mm-hmm. individuality within yeah. songwriting. Yeah. I think like Daniel Johnston is is about as far as you can go without lose like Daniel Johnston kind of did lose touch I think mm-hmm. with the thread that that binds us to reality yeah I think John Prine is actually as far as you can go without like going into this territory that yeah. abandons yeah. uh familiarity yeah I think Jan- Daniel Johnston Prine would, always kind of seemed to have one foot in both worlds yeah, I think just exactly. very grounded on one hand but did some really surreal imagery and just yeah yeah anyway. went to places that other songwriters honestly wouldn't have bravery to go like yeah. talking about hairy popsicles in a freezer or whatever. Yeah. It's yeah. like yeah. It's, iron and wine wouldn't do that. Like yeah. Ray LaMontagne wouldn't do yeah. that. You know, they yeah. wouldn't write the word popsicle in a song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think he said Harry popsicle anyway. Of course, I was talking to Caleb about this and he was like, yeah, you know, Guy Clark, he had this song where he talked about moldy man- vanilla wafers, you know, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. Some people just do it. So, anywho, I don't know. Just songwriters. Um, I, 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 I pray to God that I reach a point in my life where I, I, I can be 
70 or 80 years old and putting out like the best material I've ever put yeah, out. Yeah. You know? It's, it's kind of remarkable. Yeah. Oh, and I said in the book, that's one, you know, one reason I was glad I got to do the afterward is to talk about that last album. Cause you know, I thought Brian was done <laughs> basically. I, didn't, I really didn't think he had another good album in him or even necessarily an album at all. Yeah. And then he comes out with, was it the tree of forgiveness? I think is the title. I'm just, you know, just a, I don't know, you know, one of his best albums at age 72 or whatever he was at the time. And mm. Hell of a way to go out. Hell yeah. Well, Eddie, uh, I will wrap us up so we I don't take up more of your time All than right, I thanks, should. Thanks, Tyler. I really appreciate it. This has been fun. Man, I'm glad we finally got to do this. Um, I feel like I've been pretty rambly. I hope this has been a oh, good, no, this is good, great. good conversation. This is absolutely great. Um, I, a little bit of uh, trivia for the for the big, <laughs> for the super fans, yeah. you were originally like my goal or whatever, uh, with this was for you to be episode one. Oh, wow. And so <laughs> your episode, I don't know, 45, something like that. So we've, it, it, <laughs> we finally got you on here and um, I'm really glad about th- thanks that. Thanks for your patience. Yeah. The, the book kind of everything got put on the back burner for shit. The I last mean, couple of years, especially to get that book done. So yeah, everything, this all turned into something I didn't expect to. Yeah, like yeah. I just didn't realize how I, in my mind I was like, yeah, I'll do them every week. I didn't realize what that meant and what it was going to all unfold like, yeah, but yeah. it's been a blessing, man. And it's been, awesome. it's been awesome. So anyway, I'm just stoked that we did this. And, um, like, like I've said a few times, I want this to be a space where as things happen, this is a space where people can like kind of tell their story more and more. So, if we don't have uh, publications that can do it, I hope that this space will be one that can be useful. So that's a good thing for sure. If you, uh, as more things happen in your life, if you want to come back and talk about them, but please, please thanks, come back. Thanks. Well, especially yeah, when, when the doc doc book is closer to publication, I'd, I would love to talk more about it. Hell yeah. Well, that's what we'll do then. All right. All right. Well, thanks again, man. Thank you.